don't, 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 I'll have the explanation for that after the episode. But for right now, here comes Outcast, episode 16. Outcast is a science fiction podcast novel written and read by Chris Fitzgerald. This novel contains mature subject matter, language, and violence, so listener discretion is strongly advised. And hello once again, Outcasts. I know it's been a long time, and as usual, I'm filled with apologies, things of regret. Although this time I do have a bit of an explanation. Um, I'm not going to get into it too much here at the beginning. I know a lot of you have been really waiting for this, so we're just going to get right into it. I've got some feedback and a couple of promos I want to play at the end of the episode. But for now, let's sit back, relax, and enjoy some Outcast. Chapter 16 The journey back home was a silent one. From the moment we emerged from the alley onward, we hardly spoke. At first I feared that she was somehow angry with me for acting the way I had, but whenever we stopped for a traffic light or to simply get our bearings, I felt her lean against me and purr softly. At this, I felt relieved. The last thing I wanted was for her to have no one to turn to, especially after a night like this one. We'd found one of those all-night clinics a few blocks from the alley, and within an hour her ear had been repaired. The dermal regenerator had worked wonders on knitting the flesh of her ear back together, but the fur that had been torn out would take a few days to grow back. Until then, three bald lines on her ear reminded both of us of what had once been there, and how they'd been removed. While she'd been getting her ear tended to, I had taken over one of the restrooms and tried to wash the blood off my hands and shirt. It had worked to some extent. The shirt wasn't completely clean, but it was wearable, even without the tiger's jacket I'd taken. My hands came clean rather quickly, and I remember marveling at how many tooth fragments had been caught in the fur there. Had I not been so overwhelmed with shame at what I'd done, I would have laughed. Before long, we were on a transit shuttle headed for home. The moment we were seated, she leaned up against me and closed her eyes. I wrapped my arms around her and gently stroked behind the ear that hadn't been damaged. It wasn't long before her breathing fell into a regular, shallow pattern indicating that she'd fallen asleep. I had to admit it was hard for me to keep my own eyes open, but I couldn't give in just yet. We'd be home soon, and then we could just curl up together and do our best to let this night pass into our memories. Or so I thought. I woke her up minutes before our stop. She stretched briefly before we both stepped off the shuttle and into the cool night air. The moons were all full this night, which helped light our way across the field to the tree line. We walked slowly, hand in hand, not saying anything. Any time I looked over at her, Techie's face was a mask of pure determination. She rarely blinked and never once turned her head from the path we walked. 
She did squeeze my hand reassuringly, though. Another reminder that whatever was going through her head, I wasn't the cause of it. After several more minutes of walking, we finally arrived at the clearing. I'd never been so happy to see that place as I had that night. The exhaustion of beating the tar out of those four paklas was finally catching up to me, and I knew I'd barely have my clothes off before I collapsed onto our bed and fell asleep. I moved towards the door, but suddenly felt myself being pulled in the opposite direction. I looked over and saw Tekki moving towards the woodpile and grabbing as much wood as she could carry. I was surprised at first, but then figured she probably wanted a nice warm fire to sleep by. Ever the gentleman, I scooped up several cut pieces as well, enough for tonight and the morning. She surprised me again, however, by heading towards the back of the dwelling. I followed and watched as she dropped the wood inside a ring of stones we'd made a while ago. Some nights we would stay out here, enjoying both the warmth of the fire and each other's company. On the occasional night, we would make love by the fire, falling asleep in each other's arms afterwards. As much as I loved her, I began to wonder just what she was doing now. I watched her quickly arrange the wood in the center of the ring, and moments later had a small fire going. It didn't take long for the rest of the wood to catch, and soon the fire burned bright and hot before us. I had to take a step back from the quick, intense heat that washed over me. I dropped my load of wood on the outside of the ring, figuring I could always feed the fire later. Tekki's movements caught my eye once more, and I was shocked to see her stripping out of her dress and everything else. What further surprised me was when she took her bundled clothes and threw them atop the blazing fire. It didn't take long before the flames had all but consumed the flimsy garments, reducing them to mere ash to be blown away on the wind. You might want to do the same, she said, snapping me back to reality. I looked in her direction, only to see her disappear into the darkness beyond the firelight's reach. I quickly followed suit, stripping down to the fur and tossing my clothes into the fire. I winced as I saw the flames first lick over the clothes, then begin to consume them. I rather liked how I'd looked, dressed in those clothes. It seemed almost a waste, really. I followed where Tekki had gone, and soon found myself standing on the edge of the pool. She turned to face me and I slipped in, accepting her wordless invitation. The water felt as warm as a blanket to me, and again it was hard for me to keep my eyes open. I leaned back against the edge of the pool, and she moved towards me. She leaned against me, and I wrapped my arms around her waist, pulling her close. Gently I kissed the top of her head, and was rewarded by a soft sigh from her. I silently thanked every god I knew that she... No. We were all right. You deserve the truth, Dallin, she finally said. The truth about my past, how I got here. You should hear it all. I could feel her begin to shake slightly, and I drew her in closer. I'm just scared that after you'll hear it, you'll... you'll hate me. I could never hate you, Teki, I said softly, kissing the back of her head. Whatever happened to you, what, whatever it was with those four, none of that matters to me. All that matters is that you're here, now, with me. You might not think so after what I have to say, she said softly. Then, with another deep breath, she told me her story.
I used to think life was cheap in the clans. Compared to the tribal ways of the Tanayans, clan life is pathetically complacent. Even the Shatliya, known for their acts of brutality against exiles, are nothing compared to a sect of Tanayan tribesmen known as the Hunters. Their mission is a simple one. Find any exiles you can, and eliminate them any way you see fit. Exiles are typically given a few days to leave the tribe lands before the hunters are sent out. The length of this head start depends largely on the person being exiled and how much time they deserve to escape before being hunted down. In Teki's case, she'd only been given three days to run before being pursued. Luckily, she'd managed to leave the tribe lands by the second day and was in the capital city of Kalarath by the third. There is no support group like the Foundation in Tanaya, so Teki was forced to fend for herself. She eventually found a place, a tavern, that would let her stay in one of the vacant rooms at night in exchange for her work. She served drinks, cleaned tables, and endured more than a few insults and advances. However, she was relatively safe from the hunters who would think twice about attacking her in the city. She worked at the tavern for about a month and was slowly beginning to enjoy herself when he walked in. Originally, she'd paid him no mind and served him like any other customer. Her curiosity rose, though, when she noticed the size of the tips he was leaving her. They were generous enough that on days when she dared, she was more than able to buy the things she needed to survive as well as indulge herself a bit. Normally used to the strict ways of the tribes, with enough money in her pocket, the world seemed to open itself up to Teki, to show her that there was a life outside that of the tribes, a good, comfortable life that didn't require a daily sacrifice of body and soul. Thanks to her mysterious benefactor, she had gotten a taste of urban living, and by the gods, she liked it. Another month passed in this blissful state for her. Every few days, the mystery man, well, Jaguar, would show up either alone or with a couple of friends, and on those nights Teki knew she was in for a windfall. She would even take some time and chat him up when she could. She really didn't learn that much about him, save he was a businessman from Kerala City, and that he was in Kalarath on business. Of course, she'd said very little about herself, but he didn't seem to mind. He was a rather charming individual, and Teki couldn't help feeling a little infatuated with him. One night... The jaguar came to the tavern alone, and the moment Teki put his first drink on the table, he made her an offer. The offer. He admitted to being impressed with her waitressing skills, and knew of many places in Kerala City that could pay up to ten times what he figured she was making in this place. He promised her he'd help her find one of those perfect jobs if she'd just come with him. She really didn't have anything to lose, and she knew it wouldn't be long before one of the hunters discovered her here. Still... Kerala City was a long way from home, away from the life she knew. Was it worth the risk to leave? She really didn't know this man that well, but if she stayed, she risked her own death. So, with a nod, she agreed to follow this jaguar to Kerala City and to a new life. She ran back to her room, grabbed her things, and met the jaguar outside by his chauffeur-driven skimmer. With a smile, the jaguar helped usher Teki into the back seat, then entered the vehicle as well. The moment the door closed, however, Teki's dream of a new life was shattered, replaced by a nightmare.
The Jaguar and his three cohorts had been relentless. Before they'd even made it out of the tavern's parking lot, she had been stripped of all her clothing and was crying at the Jaguar's brutal invasion of her. She would have screamed had not one of the cohorts, the lion, been forcing his own manhood down her throat. The other two, the cheetah and the tiger, waited patiently for her to be nicely broken in before they could have their turns with her. By the time they reached the spaceport in their private hangar, Teki was little more than a bundle of shivering fur on the floor of the skimmer. She barely remembered being picked up by the tiger and carried into the transport that would take her from this hellish experience to one even more nightmarish. She took some solace in that for the entire trip, no one laid a hand on her. They'd apparently gotten what they wanted from her, and now they were merely delivering her to someone else. The transport landed a few hours later, and again the tiger carried her to a waiting vehicle. Like in the transport, she'd been left alone by her kidnappers. It wasn't touched until they reached their destination. This time, instead of being carried, she was dragged into what looked like a fairly large building. It was nighttime, so she couldn't really make out the shape of it, or even where it was located. Not that it would have made any real difference to her. She was led down a hallway and eventually shoved into a room. It was a small one, with only a bed and a nightstand. She could see another opening on the far end, which she later learned was a small bathroom. The bed looked large enough to hold her and perhaps one other person. And the moment she made that observation, the clarity of her situation hit her with the force of a slap to the muzzle. She heard the door close and lock behind her, and she collapsed on the bed. Her sobs and screams echoed through the room. She pounded at the door, clawed at the walls. She hurled curse after curse at the gods, the jaguar, anyone who had a hand in bringing her to this place. Eventually, though, the despair overwhelmed her, and she huddled herself into the corner of the room, shivering and whimpering. There was no way out of this now. This was her fate. This was her curse. This was where she was going to die. Time lost all meaning to her. The next thing she remembered, an elderly female panther had come into the room and explained her situation. She was what many people called a closet kitten. Basically, she would never leave this room and would only be visited by those she was expected to service. Whatever the client wanted, she was expected to deliver. If she didn't, she would suffer the consequences. The door had a two-way lock, accessible by a key card on either side. The client was given one when they paid for their time and were expected to return it upon completion. It was at that point that they would let this pantherist know if they'd enjoyed themselves or not. If Teki was a good little kitten and did her job properly, there would be some rewards for her. Extra food, better clothes, and even some time outside if she was considered an outstanding employee. However, if she was found to be uncooperative or incompetent in the eyes of her clients, the tiger who'd raped her in that skimmer would show up, and he would be the last person she saw. She thought about the skimmer, about how brutal the tiger had been to her. It was no great stretch of her imagination to envision him beating a defenseless girl to death. Fierce as her Tanayan heritage had made her, she was no match for him. She looked at the pantheress, 
the bed, and finally the door. The revelation welled up in her, and it took everything she had not to vomit on this apparent madam. There was no escape for her. This was her life from now on. The high priest of the ten tribes had cursed her, and now she was finally realizing said curse. The pantheress said nothing more and walked out of the room. Tiki fell on the bed and surrendered once more to the sobs she had been holding back. She pounded on the mattress, roars of defiance interspersed with her sobs. More ancient curses flowed from her mouth, pleased to the gods to spare her this hellish existence. The gods, however, had remained seemingly silent. She didn't know how much time had passed. There were no windows in this room. She slept when she was tired, and was often stirred awake by the sound of her door opening. Sometimes it was the pantheress bringing her food or clothing, but more often than not it was another client coming to have his or her way with her. Her body was used, abused, and violated so many times she lost count. However, heeding the warning from her mistress, she did her best to at least appear like she was enjoying what was being done to her. She learned the right moves, the right sounds, and the right words to say to ensure her continued survival. That's all it was to her. Survival. There was no emotional involvement for her save a continuously simmering revulsion for every one of her abusers. Her responses were mechanical in nature, a mere show aimed at getting her through another hellish day. Her abductors had become regulars, too. The Jaguar, Darrow, and the others would often show up either on their own or in a group and force her to relive that first horrific encounter in the skimmer. Those were the times she was truly afraid for her life. They were always brutal, forcing her to do things none of the others would ever dream of. Whenever she showed reluctance or revulsion, the tiger would give her a small reminder of her fate should she be considered uncooperative. For what felt like days later, she would simply lie there, covered in whatever they left on her, unable to move. They were thorough. They made sure they got all they could from her before leaving her alone. The pantheress would come in sometime later and help her into the shower, doing her best to clean off what she could. If only the strong-smelling shampoo and conditioners could help cleanse her memories, too. But it never works like that, does it? No. The body can heal with time. Healing the mind and soul? That's something else. Life became an endless cycle of food, sleep, and sex for her. There was no pattern, no schedule. Food came when it came. Customers showed up when they did, and she performed for them as expected. The randomness of it all made it impossible for her to focus, to find some kind of pattern. It was exactly how they wanted it. Give the mind nothing to concentrate on, and eventually all you can do is react. Before long, you're a vegetable, a slave to the whims of your environment. Lucidity fades, and soon all you are is a chunk of meat. A slave. Sometimes, though, just when that light is about to fade, just when the last sliver of light prepares to surrender to the darkness, something happens. 
Once in a while, fate decides you've suffered enough and sends you an opportunity. It might not be much of an opportunity, and more often than not it demands something of you, but it's an opportunity nonetheless. One of Teki's customers, one she'd learned to recognize, was a leopard. A very old leopard. She found out that he was a prominent businessman, and a wealthy one at that. His needs were simple and consistent. He would show up at what she believed to be regular intervals, looking for her to pleasure him with her mouth. While he wasn't overly old, his body was paying the price for a life of extravagance, abuse, and far too many indulgences in his youth. He would hobble in on his cane and sit on the bed while Teki dropped to her knees and did what was demanded of her. As he finished this latest time, Teki noticed that his breathing was growing ragged, more so than normal. She felt him begin to shake, and as he exploded inside her mouth, he began to fall back on the bed. She pulled off of him and stared into his wide, fear-filled eyes. He was clutching at his chest desperately, as though by doing so he could ease whatever it was that was causing him so much pain. Untrained in any kind of medical assistance, Teki could only stand over him, horrified as he succumbed to the heart attack, and died. Panic filled her. What should she do now? This would be her last night alive unless... Unless... Gingerly, she reached for the old man. She began going through the pockets of his business suit, found unmarked credit chits, identification, and the key card to this room. Her body trembled with anticipation as she got dressed, stuffed the money into her pockets, and made for the door. She had no idea what lay beyond it, but the way she saw it, there was nothing to lose. If she stayed, she was dead. If she was caught, she was dead. But if she somehow made it out of here, there was a chance, though slim, that she could survive. She waved the card in front of the door's reader. Her heart skipped a beat as she heard the distinctive click of the bolt unlocking. She pushed open the door slowly and peered out into what appeared to be a hallway. As she stepped out into it, she noticed that each door had a marking of some kind on it, and the one on her door matched what was on the keycard she now held. At one end of the hallway, she could see a staircase leading down. At the other end, she could see a window. An unguarded window. Whoever was in charge of this operation must have been rather confident in his or her methods. Such confidence was probably justified, though. After all, if your mind is broken to the point of being a mere shell of a person, would you honestly recognize a genuine opportunity to escape if presented to you? Teki was no shell yet and she seized that opportunity with a savage lust. She made for the window, opening it with trembling hands and peering outside. She took in two deep breaths of the cool night air before assessing her situation. She was on what appeared to be the second floor of a building, about twenty feet up. The ground below looked soft enough, and given her height, her feet would only have to drop about fourteen or fifteen feet. It wasn't much of an advantage, but she'd take what she could. She slipped through the window, lowered herself as much as she dared, and with a silent prayer to the gods, let go. The wind came up in a rush around her. She was falling too fast. This had been a mistake. She would break something the moment she hit the ground, and they'd find her. They'd find her and torture her for trying to escape. This was all wrong. So, the moment her feet touched the ground, she tucked into a roll in order to deflect the momentum. 
Pure instinct took over from that as she unfolded herself, found her feet, and bolted towards the darkness. There were no fences or gates in her way, no sensors or alarms. She thought she heard a few shouts behind her, but they were far too distant for them to be of any threat to her. Within minutes, she was away from it all. The house, the panthers, her abductors. The darkness of the night had swallowed her up, shielding her from their half-hearted attempts to find her. At long last, she was free. I'd been in there over a year, she said finally. I used the money from the old man to stay alive until I found the foundation. Silas told me the place was safe from guys like Darrow, so I stayed there, scared that they were waiting there to take me back to that place. I felt her begin to shiver, and I closed my arms around her a bit more. Until you came, she said. I never had the courage to leave that place. But, but something told me that I had to follow you that night. She sighed then and I felt her slump a bit in my arms. I guess you must hate me by now, she muttered. Why would I hate you? I asked. She turned to face me, and I could see that same look of shame in her eyes that she'd had in the alleyway. Because I wasn't honest with you from the start, she said. Because tonight, it was my fault. If I'd told you the truth, may maybe we wouldn't have gone out. Maybe, maybe... Shh. I said, kissing the top of her forehead. Tiki, what happened tonight? It wasn't your fault. But it was, she insisted. I thought they'd given up looking for me, but they've never stopped. I've put you in danger just by being around you. How can you not hate me? Tiki, I said. I can't hate you for what they did to you. You didn't choose to become a... Um, a whore? No, a slave. I lifted her gaze to meet mine. Teki, those people, those animals, they forced you into it. It's their fault, not yours. But no, I said finally. Teki, I love you, and I swear that no one, no one, will ever harm you like that again. Ever. I cupped her face in my hands and kissed her gently. I swear, I whisper. Dallin, she choked. I... She wrapped her arms around me tightly moments before the sobs came. I enveloped her in my embrace and let her ride out the volcano of emotions erupting inside of her. She held nothing back, crying, roaring, screaming. The events of the night all seemed to hit her at once, and despite her best efforts, she was no longer able to hold it in. She cried for what felt like hours. The water around us was warm, but she wouldn't stop shivering, nor would she let me go. I planted gentle kisses on top of her head, constantly telling her that things were all right now, and that no one would ever hurt her again. I meant it, too. If Darrow and his associates ever came near her again... I wouldn't stop at a mere pounding like they got this night. No. Our next confrontation would end with their lifeless bodies littering the ground, broken monuments to the folly of harassing the love of a Lautari. Her cries eventually faded, replaced by soft whimpers and sniffles. She finally gazed up at me, a somewhat relieved look in her eyes. 
Her lips twisted into an almost innocent-looking smile, and I couldn't help but smile back. Thank you, she whispered, her voice still hoarse from all the crying. I love you. I love you too, I said back softly. We kissed tenderly, both of us too spent from the night's excitement to do much else. After a time, we finally climbed out of the pool, and after letting the dying fire dry us somewhat, we returned to the dwelling, hand in hand. I decided to call in sick for the next day's shift, but I knew I couldn't beg off my impending retreat. Taki understood this and assured me she would be all right. She also assured me that she would stay around the dwelling for her own safety until I returned. I managed to stay awake long enough to watch her fall asleep. I watched as her body finally relaxed and her breathing became normal, peaceful, calm. I couldn't have felt more relieved at that moment, relieved that she had found peace here. After running so long, her tortured soul could finally have some refuge within these walls, and I would always be there to protect her. Always. And there we have it, the end of chapter 16. So, a bit of an explanation as to why Homer Simpson was chewing me out at the beginning of, this, of the episode. I made a couple of monumental blunders in the last episode's uh, feedback. And I just want to extend my apologies to the two people I've uh, hopefully not offended too much with this. The first person I need to apologize to is Taylor. As you remember... Last episode, I had referred to Taylor as a she. Well, he emailed me back and said, Dear Chris, I'm emailing you for two reasons. Number one is, I'm male, not female. Don't worry about the mistake. We all make them. I have guessed others' genders wrong before, but that is the danger of using the internet. Secondly, I would like to congratulate you on the success you've had with your podcast. I would also like to ask you not to leave the podcast unfinished. For one, I don't like it when authors never finish their book. And secondly, I'm going to military school after this summer. And throughout dealing with the issues of a new environment, I will need something to keep me going and to comfort me when I'm sad. So continue the great work, and I hope you will get this published. Talk to you later. Sincerely, Taylor. He actually emailed me again, not long after. And he actually mentioned that when he does go to military school, he actually won't be able to listen to Outcast anymore because of the restrictions that the school places on him. Well, Taylor, all I can really say is best of luck to you, and also that this isn't going to be forever. You'll only be in school for, I don't know, maybe a couple of years, and the book is always going to be there. It'll be there both on the Mevio site as well as Podio Books, and hopefully, by the time you graduate or get out of there, I might be able to get you a print copy of this book. So the second person I have to officially apologize to is Zainab. Here I thought that had been an alias, and she told me in an email, I just wanted to clear something up. Zainab is my real name. It's not an alias. I'm a girl. Eek! Okay, <laughs> I'll go with that. She also goes on to say, I really enjoyed the last episode. I won't go into details in case I spoil someone, but I'm having loads of fun with everything you're doing. Don't apologize about lack of updates. Okay, I won't. <laughs> I just wanted to add that your novel has helped turn me on to the world of sci-fi novels. I never thought that I'd be into something like that, but I am. Astonishing, really, 
considering I used to scoff at Trekkies and star nerds all the time. Well, I'm a sci-fi nut. I still do. <laughs> oh no, looks like I'm biting back those words. Also, and I love this, if you want any help for recording female voices, you do a splendid job of narrating, though, do email me. I'm somewhat of an amateur of voice acting, but I sure do love it. Keep up the wonderful work. Okay, that was one of those holy crap letters. I'm flattered, Zainab, that, that you're offering yourself out there to help as a voice talent. To be truthful, I'm not sure if I'm going to be doing any kind of uh, extra voice work on this novel. But I do have other projects in the works. After Outcast is done, I may branch out in that direction. We'll just have to see what happens. I know how taxing it can be to do voice work for other podcasts, having done a couple myself now. It's it's fun. I, I do kind of feel sorry for the editors and producers, though. They're probably getting a lot of different quality audio samples from different people, and trying to make it all sound good together has got to be nothing short of an engineering miracle. Okay, so we're going to go to another email here. This one is from Larry. And Larry had a concern, actually, about episode 14. Um, I had actually placed a newer version, a different version of episode 14 in the Mevio feed. There wasn't anything technically wrong with the original. It was more one of my anal retentive moments where I like to keep things consistent in terms of titling. I had actually, I had misnamed it chapter 14 instead of episode 14. So again, like I said, there was really no crisis there. It was just that stupid perfectionist uh, mental disease that I have. But he does go on to say, and I love this part, he says, On a side note, I am the president of a Macintosh user group, which is a computer club, and in the keynote for our monthly meetings, I always recommend a podcast of the month. In March, I featured yours. Thanks again for the story. Okay, wow. First Outcast is going to be used as a class project for someone in the Netherlands, and now it's being recommended as a podcast of the month. I realize this email is a few months old, but still, thank you so much, Larry. I really appreciate it. I am just floored that people are doing some legwork and trying to get the word out there about the show. So my next email comes from Anon, and he says, It was so great to see a new chapter in the feed. I don't even think I was expecting to see it, but I had to check. I'm listening to it right now, and I'm sure it will be awesome. One thing, the iTunes feed downloads at about 200 bytes per second. Yup, bytes. So I started pulling the Podiobooks feed. Doubt there's anything you can do about it, but just thought I'd bring it up. I can't wait for you to continue this story. It's really, really captivating, and to think I found it by total accident via iTunes. You're my introduction to the Podiobook format, and so far you're making a great first impression on the format. Your loyal outcast, Anon. Well, again, thank you for, <laughs> thank you so much for the praise and for everything else. Again, I am absolutely flattered that this humble little project has introduced you into the world of the patio book. I mean, there are so many great titles out there, awesome podcasts, everything in the audio format, and even nowadays in video format. And hey, if I can be your gateway drug into this, hey, I'm your pusher. <laughs> As far as the feeds go, if you are having trouble getting the one that maybe you found in iTunes, I'll put a link in the show notes to my FeedBurner site, and you can try the RSS feed from there. Just drag it over into your iTunes, and it'll it'll start to download. Of course, you'll probably end up with you know three different 
titles of Outcast in your iTunes, but uh, hey, whatever you can do to get your next episode, you go ahead and do it. So my next letter comes from Chemvis, and he's commented on the show before, but he sent me another great email here. Just finished the latest episode of Outcast, and wow, that was quite the dramatic scene you played out for us. It was great how you kept us guessing till the end what exactly was going to happen to our little heroine. I have to agree with you that the high event moments of stories are a lot easier to write. I think a lot of it is because we anticipate these moments as we write up to them, and they already have such a perfect flow in our minds that we can get them out all the easier. Another factor is that you don't have to push for dialogue or scramble to figure out something for your characters to do while they're talking, not to mention the normal reduction of external dialogue and the increase of internal. He goes on to say, I also want to thank you for getting the word out about audio stories on F.A. I've gotten a few more watchers on the page lately, and I think it's thanks to you. I made the page so that I could share things like this with others that just didn't know they were out there. That's not even counting all those who just don't have either the time or patience for sitting down and reading all these wonderful stories. In closing, I have to say that I'm dying to hear the next chapter. I might even get withdrawal symptoms soon. I'll wait, though. Wait. And wait. And wait. I'll do whatever I have to to get this glorious story coursing through my system. I wish you luck and hope for the best in all your endeavors. Hopefully, one of the first on the list is the next chapter. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. <laughs> well, again, thank you for another great letter, Chemnus. Um, as you know now, and if you if you don't know yet, you can always check out my blog, which I'll have a link to in the show notes. Uh, you know that a lot of really bad things have been happening to me lately, and just being able to sit down to write, let alone record and edit, has been a real task to try to accomplish peacefully. But things are beginning to shape up, and and very soon, hopefully by early August, I should be back to a somewhat regular and peaceful writing and recording schedule. I'm not exactly sure what regular is going to mean in terms of getting stuff out there. And I mean, believe me, as anxious as a lot of you people are about getting your next episode, I am just as anxious about trying to get it out there. But I also want to make sure that what I'm giving you is the best that I can. And, like I said, stress has been a huge factor in my life for the past three months. And as tough as it's been, I'm really grateful for everybody who's, you know, sent in kind words. And I really, I really can't thank you all enough. So our next email is from Blue Husky. You might remember him from the feedback show. And he writes, Hi, it's me. I listen to your podcast, and thank you for telling my story. It means a lot. Also, I need to say I was pissed off when Teki got her earrings ripped out of her. I almost said fucking bastards to the guys who did it to her. I got too caught up in all the story, but I'm glad they're safe now. Please tell me you have the next one close to being done. Oh, I forgot. My job is going great, and my dad is coming back from Iraq for his break. Also, I want to say thank you. You've changed my life. Well, sir, I'm very relieved that your dad's coming back, even for a little while. I can't imagine what soldiers, kids, families, relatives are going through right now, you know, sending loved ones into what the news is reporting as an earthborn version of hell. And I just want to say that if any of you over there are listening to this, you guys are in my prayers that you're going to make it home safe to your families and loved ones, and that hopefully 
you'll be able to put those nightmares behind you and focus on what's important. Okay, so this is my last letter for this episode, and it's from Shane. And Shane says, Dear Chris, You're an asshole. I mean a real asshole. I'll tell you why I think you're such an asshole. You're an incredible writer. Aw, shucks. I mean, not just an incredible writer. You're such an amazing writer that has the uncanny ability to capture the interest of your readers slash listeners. Outcast is an amazing, amazing podcast. I'm hooked. I love Outcast. I'll tell you a cool story about how I listen to everything over a single night later. I'm looking forward to this one. When those two children slash felines were killed, I was pissed off. Well, that's what I was going for. You hooked me. You got me so interested in Outcast, loving every installment. And you take so damn long for another podcast. I hate that. That is why you're an asshole. Yeah, I can admit that. <laughs> However, I read your blog and I truly sympathize with your situation. I've been there. So please, please find some time to continue the story because I really love it. Well, Shane, I'm, I'm humbled. I, Believe me, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I feel like an ass every time another week goes by and I've got nothing to show for it. I'm glad that you did uh, hop over to the blog site and see what was going on in my life. But you're right, it's as hard as it's been, that's almost not an excuse. Like I said, come August, things are going to be a lot calmer for me, a lot more peaceful. And I'll be able to really focus on getting this thing done. So again, thank you very much, Shane, and thank all of you for all your feedback, all your continued listening, and for basically keeping the faith. I mean, you guys are the reason I'm doing this. As much as some kind of fame or a book deal would be nice uh, to get out of this, I really am doing this for the fans, for all of you, for all my loyal outcasts. <laughs> so before I get out of here, there are two promos I want to play. The first is from J.C. Hutchins, who's taken a monumental leap in the publishing world. He's released a book called Personal Effects Dark Art, and this is no ordinary book. Inside, there is a whole swack of items. Personal effects, believe it or not. <laughs> and there are links to websites, phone numbers to voicemails, all of which are active. This is a completely immersive what he calls a transmedia experience. Now, the book is not in podcast format. It's strictly pulp. However, he did release a prequel, which I'll put a link to in the show notes, and it's called Personal Effects, Sword of Blood. It introduces you to the main character of Dark Art, as well as it gives you a feel for what JC's going for here. And I gotta say, as much as he is a great science fiction writer with Seventh Son... This guy writes horror that would make Stephen King piss himself. I'm not kidding, folks. This guy's good. And the second promo I'm going to play is for a book called The Fox. Now, The Fox has been written by Arlene Radaski, And her and I have swapped emails back and forth. And she knows a little bit about what's going on with me. And she's really been in my corner for all of this. She's also one of the few authors that I know, or one of the few podcast authors that I know, who is actually listening uh, to Outcast. I imagine there's a lot more out there. I mean, Marcus Noble, for one. 
But as far as getting feedback from another podcast author about Outcast, Arlene is one of a very select few. And getting that kind of feedback and just a response from a fellow podcast author is immensely flattering, honoring, and it really lets me know that, you know, maybe I'm doing something right here. So she's done me more solids than I care to count, and it's only fitting that I do a couple for her. I've been promoting her book on a couple of sites, and in this episode, I'm going to play the promo for The Fox, which you can find at Patio Books, and again, I'll have the link in the show notes. So that's going to wrap it up for me for this time. I'll do my best to make sure that I don't leave you hanging as long as I have this time. And please know that things are getting better for me. I appreciate all your well wishes. I love your feedback. I am thankful for all of you who've taken the time out of your day to listen and to comment on the show. So until next time, this is Chris signing off. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to Outcast, a podcast novel written and read by Chris Vitston. For more information, please visit the show's website at outcastnovel.mevio.com. Feel free to leave a comment or soundbite at outcastnovel at gmail.com or call the NARC line at 206-600-NARC. That's 206-600-6272. Theme music for Outcast is the song Electric Blue by Droom, which can be found on the Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Cover art for Outcast done by Jason Frieden. Check out his site at www.jasonfrieden.com. And again, thanks for listening. Available now on patiobooks.com. The grand design of nine. <laughs> Those words haunt the mind of Brinkvale psychiatric therapist, Zach Taylor. When his elderly patient, a remorseless killer, utters that phrase, Zach embarks on a quest to glean its cryptic meaning. The answers lie with the patient's psychic granddaughter, but Hen is crazier than the people Zack treats. And the mystical great blade of blood he soon pursues may be more dangerous and deadly than Zack ever imagined. J.C. Hutchins' personal effects, Sword of Blood, is a prequel audio novella to his supernatural thriller novel, Personal Effects, Dark Art. Learn more about both stories and become a part of the personal effects universe at jchutchins.net. Available now on patiobooks.com. By oppressions, woes, and pains, by your sons and servile chains, we will drain our dearest veins. But they shall be free. In The Fox, 
a podcast historical novel, Jonna and Laverne's clan lay in the Romans' path of destruction. The death of their people is a certainty unless a bargain is made with the gods, even if it means a human sacrifice. Will the trade the druid Laverne and his visionary wife Jonna make with the gods save their family? Will there be future generations to sing the songs of their dead? Two thousand years later, Ayn McRae is on their trail. She's a struggling archaeologist on the verge of uncovering the village where Jonna and Laverne lived. She's found the farm where her site is located is for sale. But for a ghostly visit, Reed almost triumphs, leaving the truth and ancient stories buried forever. Listen to The Fox and discover if Jonna and Laverne's bloodline continues and if Ayn wins her independence, finds answers to haunting questions, and allows a lost love to be rekindled. Visit my website, www.radasky.com, to learn more about The Fox.